You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you articles of interest from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 3rd of November for the listening week that begins the 4th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening this week with an article I didn't have time to finish last week comes from the New York Times. She was Oprah before Oprah. Alice Travis might not be a familiar name now, but in the late 1970s, she became the first black woman to host a nationally syndicated talk show. This was originally posted October 17th, written by Maya S. Cade. The caption under the photo of Alice Travis says, Alice Travis broke ground in 1977 with, for you, Black Woman, the first national talk show created for, as the title suggested, a Black female audience. Alice Travis was a seasoned reporter when she auditioned in 1975 for the ABC show that would become Good Morning America. Travis, who was then 32, had already co-hosted two major market news shows, Panorama, alongside Maury Povich, in Washington, D.C., and AM New York, the black-owned weekly newspaper New York Amsterdam News, once described her as one of the brightest and brainiest of the undiscovered TV personalities. So she was unprepared for what she said a network executive told her after the audition. Quite frankly, your color is not to your advantage, Travis recounted over lunch in Manhattan this past summer. Shocking statements, but after a while they no longer shocked. Travis was among the first wave of black television newswomen hired nationwide, part of an early effort to diversify American newsrooms in the wake of the protests and racial conflicts of the 1960s. While her rejection by the ABC morning show was painful, what she did next was groundbreaking. She became the first black woman to host her own national talk show. The syndicated For You, Black Woman premiered in June 1977, the first national talk show created for a black female audience. From a set in a New York studio designed to look like a comfortable living room, Travis discussed topics like self-fulfillment, relationships, beauty, politics, and parenting, as they applied specifically to black women, occasionally with notable figures. Her guests included Toni Morrison, the activist Florence Kennedy, and the actress Jane Kennedy. Muhammad Ali, then the heavyweight champion, came on to discuss his relationships with women, and his occasionally benighted attitudes about them. Travis told the New York Times in a 1978 interview about that episode, he's arrogant, chauvinistic, and delightful. In a way, she was Oprah before Oprah, a black woman discussing the news of the day and interviewing celebrities before a national TV audience. According to Charles W. Gerber, the son of the For You creator, Charles S. Gerber, Oprah Winfrey at one point thanked his father for putting the show on the air. 
parentheses Winfrey, declined to comment through a spokeswoman. Travis's TV career began with much promise, but ended up being relatively brief. She came up in an era when black anchor women seemed to be solidifying their place as part of the future of news programming, and at the height of her popularity, in 1978, Travis was broadcast to over 70% of black America, according to the news reports at the time. But she stepped away from the industry only a decade after her broadcast career began. As a black mass media researcher and the creator and curator of the Black Film Archive, I was stunned that I had never heard of Travis until I stumbled upon tapes of For You, Black Woman, earlier this year at the Library of Congress, where I'm currently a scholar-in-residence. As I watched grainy 1977 clips in the library's Moving Image Research Center, Travis's intellect, energetic smile, and bubbly demeanor seemed to leap off the screen. I decided I had to learn more about her. A few weeks later, she sat across from me at a cafe for her first interview in years. Over lunch, she talked about her career as part of a tradition of black women being overlooked for their accomplishments. She said, Who are these unknown black women who walk among us and who, without recognition, march into eternity through the multitude of lives they have touched? Now 80, Travis grew up in New Orleans in a multi-generational home built by her carpenter grandfather. In 1965, she graduated from Immaculata College, which is now Immaculata University, in Pennsylvania with a sociology degree, planning to work in health services. But a conversation with a Metro Media Radio executive named Alan Hotland put her on the broadcast path instead. Travis said, I do think that we have inclinations, little voices in us that tell us what we're supposed to do. I have this desire to understand the world around me. In 1970, she became an anchor for Panorama, and then three years later, she moved to AM New York. She went on to try out for the Today Show and develop several talk show pilots before, for you, gave her the chance to strike out on her own. Like many other black journalists of her generation, Travis got her start after the release of a scathing 1968 report from the Kerner Commission, a group formed by President Lyndon B. Johnson to find solutions to the nation's civil unrest. Dorothy Tucker, a longtime reporter for Chicago's CBS affiliate and a former president of the National Association of Black Journalists, said the major takeaway from the Kerner Commission report Quote, was a recognition that our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. The media and its lack of coverage dealing with racial issues was also had pardon me, also held responsible for creating the problems outlined by the commission, she explained. That wasn't lost on white news managers who were forced to acknowledge the need to bring diversity to their historically white newsrooms. The Kerner Report opened the door of opportunity that had been unfairly closed to black journalists for too long. The report, along with the efforts of black organizers who demanded access to the airwaves, led to an influx of black talent into newsrooms as well as a flourishing of black public affairs programs. Shows like Black Journal, 
a public television series produced by WNET, Say Brother, produced by WGBH in Boston, and WNET's Soul, explored black artistic and political life, publicized internal debates, and showcased black possibility on screen. While shows like Basic Black, the successor to Say Brother, endure, others ended up as attention, pardon me, start that over, others ended as attention on civil rights issues faded and funding dried up. For You arrived near the end of this movement in 1977, but there wasn't much of a blueprint while performers like Della Reese and Barbara McNair had hosted variety shows for a national audience, there had not been a nationally syndicated talk show hosted by or conceived specifically for black women. From the beginning, Travis's goal was to treat her audience with respect and to present a nuanced portrait of modern black womanhood, both things that she felt television had mostly denied black women. Celebrities aside, the show brought on guests from many different professions, child care professionals, psychologists, teachers, hairdressers, and she centered black women's issues with the friendly intimacy of a phone call between girlfriends. Black women on TV, quote, are usually portrayed as simplistic, sensuous, or over-maternal, never as having to deal with various levels of complexity, she told the Times back then, and went on, I sign off each program with the expression, there are no more colored girls. The lady is black. Lady is a word denied us, she continued, except the cleaning lady is coming. For You was produced by a black husband and wife team, Fred and Felicidad Dukes, who employed several black production staffers. Gerber, the creator, was the white president of a production company, Gerber Carter Communications, that made several specials aimed at black audiences. My father's inspiration for this is a strong, strong belief in equality and equity, said the son, Charles W. Gerber, who was a production assistant on For You. Parentheses, he is currently the chief executive of Triumph Worldwide, a financial services company. And he went on, he identified this need because there was not something of that sort. For You brought Travis into the upper echelons of black fame for a time. Maya Angelou and Stephanie Mills, among others, honored her at a gala ahead of the premiere of the second season. She had lunches with James Baldwin and dinners at Toni Morrison's kitchen table. She befriended Ray Charles. She also received notes of gratitude from black women across the country. People were saying, You noticed us, Travis recalled over lunch. It was almost as though large swaths of people were mesmerized by the fact that there was this program in their honor. Her run on For You was ultimately short-lived, however. A dispute over a remote shoot that went awry eventually led to Travis's contract being bought out and her leaving the show. When her last taped episode of For You aired in 1979, it was effectively the end of her broadcasting career. There were other offers, but aware that the Today Show and Good Morning America, the crown jewels, were not in the cards for me during that era, she said, 
I reasoned it was a good time to consider remarrying and starting a family. My biological clock was ticking. For You was retooled and renamed Today's Black Woman. Hosted by the singer and actress Frida Payne, it ran until 1983, a few years before the morning program AM Chicago, thanks to the growing popularity of its host, was renamed The Oprah Winfrey Show in 1985. That show would go national in 1986 and become the highest-rated daytime talk show in American history. For You, Black Woman is mostly forgotten. After Travis left, she went into fashion, creating a line of merchandise featuring her slogan, The Lady is Black. Her handbags were eventually carried by retailers like Saks Fifth Avenue. She also had a child, a son, and went on to become a successful communications consultant. People forget Alice's name, said Barry Kluger, who oversaw publicity for the show. He said, For you undeniably broke ground, even if the show and its host hadn't received their due credit. Travis believes the erasure of black cultural history is intentional. She said, when you reduce the black experience to nothing but a reflection on slavery, that's what you get. But she also made clear that she still lives by her former sign-off sentiment, the lady is black. What was once a kind of a catchphrase has in the time since become a personal motto and a rallying cry. Let us tune out the rhetoric of hate, she wrote in an email after the interview. Let us rejoice in our wit and ingenuity. Let our behavior and bearing display the comportment expected of the woman of substance who we are. And a quick follow-up about the program they mentioned, Basic Black, which is still happening. That's in Massachusetts area. It says here, produced live at GBH Studios in Boston, Basic Black is the longest-running program on public television focusing on the interests of people of color. Originally called Say Brother, it was created in 1968 during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. And some of their programs can be found at www.wgbh.org slash TV shows slash basic black. Next article delves into colonial history, comes from The Atlantic, and it is a book review. The article written by Cullen Murphy. It was posted October 24th. Will the expelled people of Chagos finally find justice? A new book from Philippe Sands, titled The Last Colony, tells the story of the Chagosians, and island people who were expelled from their homes by the British and Americans. You could be forgiven for thinking that a label on a map, in this case the British Indian Ocean Territory, known as B-I-O-T, pronounced somewhat like buyout, is something you could take at face value. I own a coffee mug emblazoned with the territory's coat of arms, a Union Jack, a crown, a palm tree, and some wavy lines representing water, all displayed on a shield supported by two sea turtles. I have seen coins and stamps from the territory and have frequently come across the domain name .io, which stands for Indian Ocean. This entity has a flag, a website, and a commissioner in London. 
and there is some dry land associated with the name. The 60 or so low-lying tiny islands of the remote Chagos archipelago spread out across 6,000 square miles of sea near the Indian Ocean's geographic center. I stepped foot on several of the islands last year, bringing back a vial of fine white sand that I hoped customs authorities wouldn't mistake for something else. Bayat was created in the 1960s as a useful fiction. The Chagos Archipelago originally formed part of the British island colony of Mauritius, some 1,300 miles to the west, as Mauritius sought independence Britain set out to detach Chagos from the colony's administrative jurisdiction. Keeping it separate was important so that one of the archipelago's islands, Diego Garcia, could effectively be leased to the United States for use as a major military base. Britain was in the process of a military withdrawal, quote, east of Suez. The U.S. was moving in, and Diego Garcia offered a strategic location to make the detachment form from Mauritius, pardon me, Mauritius, to make it look legitimate in international eyes, Britain claimed falsely that the islands were populated only by transient contract laborers, and that as a result, no vexing issues of self-determination were involved. In a tone of imperial languor, the Foreign Office memo in 1966 referred to those who lived on the islands as, quote, some few Tarzans or Men Fridays whose origins are obscure. For security reasons, the U.S. wanted them gone, and Britain was happy to oblige. The several thousand people of Chagos, whose enslaved ancestors had been brought to the archipelago, mainly from Madagascar and Mozambique, more than two centuries before, worked chiefly in the harvesting and processing of coconuts for the oil. In the late 1960s and early 70s, they were forcibly expelled under the pretense that they hadn't really been inhabitants at all. The new empty zone of atolls was named, renamed the British Indian Ocean Territory. The motto on its escutcheon reads In Tutela Nostra Lemuria, which stands for Lemuria is in our charge, that reference being to a mythical lost continent. The Americans occupied Diego Garcia, and when the airport runway was finished, the comedian Bob Hope arrived on one of his USO tours to entertain them. The Chagosians had been seeking redress ever since, some mixture of reparations and apology, a pathway to British citizenship, and the right of return. Mauritius has been seeking redress too. It wants its islands back and has declared that it would allow the Chagosians to return if they so wished. Those who remember life on Chagos are now old, and they and their descendants are spread across Mauritius, the Seychelles, and Great Britain itself. And Great Britain itself, they are not united in their outlook. By now, it is likely that relatively few would exercise an option to reside permanently in the archipelago. They would like to be able to visit, however. Many are more interested in better treatment in the places they now live and in compensation. Affection for Mauritius is not always deep. 
But starting three decades ago, some of the Chagossians began bringing legal actions in British courts, even as the government of Mauritius began pursuing its own claims through international courts. Unexpectedly, both sides of pardon me, both sets of plaintiffs secured some victories. Quiet negotiations are now underway involving Britain and Mauritius and the U.S. can reasonably be assumed to be involved behind the scenes. In the next year or so, the sun may finally set on the British Indian Ocean territory. The international lawyer Philip Sands tells this story of the Chagossians' long exile and their fight for some form of justice in the Lost Colony book. His account ranges from across history while giving voice to the living. He has himself been involved in some of the legal battles. The Lost Colony does not cover the end game of the Chagos saga, which continues to unfold, but the book is animated by the belief that an end may be in sight. International law is peculiar. It often doesn't seem to matter until suddenly after decades have gone by, it does. The legal process can be tedious, and not just for the lawyers, but this short book is not a treatise. Sands wisely builds some of his narrative around the life of Elizabeth Elise, Elise, pardon me. She had been born in the Chagos Archipelago on Ile du Coin, an island in the Peros Banos Atoll, and was barely 20 recently married when, in 1973, she, her husband, and everyone else in the atoll were rounded up, given a few hours to pack a single suitcase each, and made to board a ship for Mauritius, a six-day voyage away. Elise was pregnant and would lose her baby after her arrival in Port Louis. All pets had to be left behind. They were hunted down and shot or herded into coconut-drying sheds and gassed, events memorably chronicled by the journalist Simon Winchester. Nearly 50 years later, in 2018, Elisabeth Elise was the person chosen to describe the experience of expulsion to the world court in The Hague. Sands writes, Madame Elise's statement was projected on two large screens that hung above the judges, words and images broadcast around the world. In faraway Port Louis, the capital of Mauritius, the proceedings were shown live on national television as her friends gathered in a community center to watch. The Chagossians had been trying to leverage the legal system for decades. One effort was driven by a man named Olivier Bancourt, who was just a boy on Ile de Coin when he and his family were forced to leave. Bancol leads an organization called the Chagos Refugees Camp, pardon me, that's Chagos Refugees Group, and has argued in British courts that the eviction was illegal and the victims have a right of return. He actually won his case in 2000, but the British government brushed it aside after 9-11. No point aggravating the Americans as they waged a war on terror, Parentheses, Diego Garcia was reportedly used as a transit point for rendition flights. The second effort in the world court was driven by Mauritius for its own purposes. Mauritius, represented by a team that includes Sands, argued that the detachment of, by, me, the detachment of Chagos by Britain had been based on blatant falsehoods 
and that the detachment and the expulsions were illegal. In 2019, the World Court ruled against Britain, a judgment endorsed by the UN General Assembly. In February 2022, with those victories in hand, Mauritian officials and a group of Chagossians mounted a trip to the archipelago, Mauritius, to assert a claim. The Chagossians to visit the islands of their birth, the first time they had done so without a British military escort. The last colony, the title of the book is The Last Colony, includes maps and photographs that kindled my own memories of that trip. The islands of the archipelago are volcanic platforms tufted with palm trees and fringed with white sand. Sea turtles swim in the clear waters of the lagoons. Giant crabs drop to the ground from trees. Ashore, the Chagossians hacked away at weeds and vines in cemeteries whose earliest gravestones bore dates from the late 18th century. A long way back for transient contract laborers. The stone churches stood roofless, each a tropical Tintern Abbey. Palm trees sprouted in the naves, the floors covered with coconuts. The Chagossians cleared those out, too. The last photo in the book is of Lisbeth Elisee sitting on the trunk of a palm tree that leaned horizontally over a patch of sandy beach on Ile du Coin. Like sands, I remember seeing her there bouncing gently. Whether from clear-eyed memory of, or from the ache of nostalgia, the Chicosians often speak of the archipelago as a lost Eden. The sight of Elisee sitting on a tree trunk seemed to capture, for a moment, her long-ago youth before the expulsion. I spoke recently with Olivier Bancolt, the Chagos activist, as he passed through Washington. No one thinks seriously in terms of independence for Chagos. The goal at the moment is for some sort of special recognition as part of Mauritian sovereignty. But the Chagosians do have a flag, as well as a soccer team based near London that plays internationally. In the future, some of them may even try to move back to the archipelago, though doing so would be difficult. The buildings and infrastructure are gone, and nature has reclaimed almost everything. One could imagine that some basic support for the rest of the archipelago to sustain a modest resettlement could be provided by way of Diego Garcia, but such a prospect is getting far ahead of events. Van Cole and his group are not involved in the negotiations, but he was pressing his case at the State Department and on the Hill and in press conferences and on NPR. Then he made his way to the United Nations in New York. When I asked him what he was looking for from the negotiations, he recited a list, but it began with just two words, an apology. Turning to theroot.com for follow-up, with this article, Reparations for Black People Across the World, this United Nations body thinks so. This is written by Noah A. McGee, posted on the 3rd. In its first report, the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent thinks reparations for black people are, quote, a cornerstone of justice in the 21st century. 
Reparations in the United States have always been a discussion, but not on a national level that has gained any real traction. Some states like California are close to giving out reparations due to the state creating a task force tasked with the researching of the specific injustices done against black people and creating the best way for black residents to receive payments. So it's close to happening for some black people, but not all. At least until now, on Monday, the United Nations General Assembly received a report from the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent, which is, quote, a platform for improving the safety and quality of life and livelihoods of people of African descent, according to the United Nations. The report details why reparations are imperative to amend past injustices against people with African ancestry, and says that they are a cornerstone of justice in the 21st century, according to the Associated Press. When they say people of African descent, they aren't just talking about black people in the United States or Europe. They're talking about black people all across the world. F.C. Campbell Barr, the chair of the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent, said during a press conference on Tuesday that the legacies of colonialism, enslavement, and apartheid are still alive today. Barr also argued that people of African descent are exposed to more violence compared to other groups due to their encounters with police and authority officials. She further claimed racism has an extreme effect on the mental and physical health of black people, which has led to increased health disparities. This quote from the Associated Press. The forum's report and recommendations are based on its two initial sessions, one last December in Geneva and one May 30th through June 2nd in New York. During the sessions of the permanent forum, halting and reversing the lasting consequences of enslavement, colonialism, genocide, and apartheid were seen as key to addressing systemic and structural racism against people of African descent both internationally and domestically, the report says. The report also recommends that every member of the United Nations educate themselves on the history of enslavement and colonialism of African people across the world, in hopes that they will understand their role in contributing to racism on global and local levels. Moving to the Washington Post for this opinion piece, which was posted October 30th, written by Alyssa Rosenberg. The best middle and high school program no one knows about. An Iowa high school student considered the future of her family farm through the lens of Rachel, Carson, pardon me, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. One middle schooler analyzed tensions between Bangladesh and Pakistan with fierce moral clarity. Another educated himself about trade policy to understand Puerto Rico. The kids I met at the National History Day finals in College Park in June weren't afraid to confront history. They were rushing toward the hard truths some adults want to hide from them. Their original research projects, some of which I judged, showed just how distant partisan debates about education can be from the real experiences and convictions of American kids. Encouraging middle and high school students to participate in National History Day 
is one of the wisest things parents and teachers can do. Contestants develop skills that will serve them for life, curiosity, critical thinking, and research. Communities touched by students' work get a vital reminder that history done right upends any reductive agenda. Founded in 1974 and modeled on science fairs, the core National History Day program aims to teach historical methods rather than a particular narrative. Each year, half a million students in grades 6 to 12 examine primary and secondary sources to develop an original argument about a subject they choose. They present their findings in papers, documentaries, performances, exhibits, and websites. As they advance through local and state rounds, these young researchers get feedback from judges, usually teachers, historians, librarians, and citizens, on how to broaden their exploration and sharpen their analysis. History Day isn't just preparation for the Academy. Celebrity chef Guy Fieri made it to nationals in eighth grade with a project on soft pretzels. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is a program alumnus. More than 20 years ago, I fell in love with writing and investigation while working on History Day papers at the archives of the Massachusetts Department of Transportation and the Lexington Historical Society. The projects are a testament to students' ambition. Elizabeth Green, who ran the History Day program at Pasigula High School in Mississippi for almost 20 years, brims with examples. One mentee talked her way onto the phone with music journalist Chuck Klosterman for a project on punk rock. Another gathered personal journals and photographs of the 1980s movement to preserve deaf leadership at Gallaudet University. Kids learn that even gaps in the record can be revelatory. Olivia Freeman, now a freshman at Miami University in Ohio, investigated the life of Navy steward third-class Vernon Kirk, who served aboard the World War II submarine USS Swordfish and was lost when it sank. She told me, You can find out a lot about a state or a place and how they keep their records, especially how they keep their records of black people. The paucity of information, said Freeman, cut black Americans out of history and severed them from their ancestors. The competition also encourages students to look at what makes sources valid or trustworthy. Pardon me, that's valid or untrustworthy. Essential in this moment of widespread misinformation, whatever kids grow up to be, learning to read formal and technical materials is useful. Green explains, we have to be able to interpret and understand documents to protect ourselves, to protect our family, to make wise choices. Many explore painful episodes and thorny questions of injustice. Their grit is a rebuke to the idea that children are too sensitive for the harshness of history. Sevier County High School student Molly Bohannon worked with her teacher, Rebecca Bird, to explore pardon me, to explore the conviction of Maurice Mays, who in 1919 was accused of murdering a white woman in a case that led to riots in Knoxville. He was executed in 1922, and an ongoing movement seeks his exoneration. Green mentored an eighth grader who interviewed a woman, Carolyn Maul, who at a similar age 
had survived the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. History Day can deepen kids' ties to their communities. The requirement that students use primary sources often leads them to local historical societies and museums, such as the Beck Cultural Exchange Center in Knoxville, where Bird students researched the city's civil rights movement. Other students work with local historians. Green's students read a graduate thesis by Scotty Kirkland pardon me, of Alabama's Department of Archives and History as part of their research on the lynching of teenager Michael Donald in 1981. National History Day also runs spin-off programs, such as Sacrifice for Freedom, Participants research World War II veterans from their states to write eulogies that they read at grave sites in the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu or in the Normandy American Cemetery in France. Students often end up in contact with veterans' families. Bohannon chose Johnny Harrison Bailey, only to realize he was related to her pastor. The family shared photos and memories to help her, in return, Bohannon shared her impressions of Bailey's resting place in Hawaii, a pilgrimage many and his family had not been able to make. These competition trips can be life-changing. Alondra Reyes, a longtime History Day participant, felt torn between military service and college until she met a professor while visiting the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, who told her that she didn't have to choose. Now a senior at the Naval Academy, she's researching the history of women there to create a record of how far midshipmen like her have come. Reyes told me that she, when she feels discouraged, she reads the eulogies that she and other students wrote to remind herself of the tradition of service she aspired to. Reyes and her parents got to go into the White House during one of their trips to History Day Nationals. She recalls, we had the opportunity to look from the inside out. I'm a little Mexican girl raised in the state of Mississippi with immigrant parents. How am I here? Her commitment to learning from the past to inform the future is one obvious answer. Kathy Gorn, Executive Director of National History Day, has observed students like Reyes and political battles over history education for four decades. She thinks the kids know themselves better than the adults who want to shield them. She told me, they come at this stuff fresh. It doesn't make them feel bad about who they are. It doesn't make them hate their country. It teaches them to love the fact that we have a constitution that can be amended, that we can work to fix the problems and the difficulties and the horrors. The best way to prepare children to build a better future is by giving them opportunities to engage with the past, trusting in their courage to do so. That's the lesson of National History Day. Turning back to theroot.com for our next few articles now. This one is written, pardon me, written by Angela Johnson and it was published on the 3rd. Bird names honoring racists will soon be a thing of the past. The English Bird Names Project removes English common names from birds common to the United States and Canada. 
You probably already know that this country has a serious problem with honoring racist folks with street names, school names, and statues. All you have to do is look at Strom Thurmond High School in Johnston, South Carolina, and Big Negro Creek in Warren, Illinois. And we can't leave out Peter Stuyvesant, a Stuyvesant, a New York slave owner who has a street, park, and high school, and a whole Brooklyn neighborhood named after him. But who knew birds could be racist, too? That's right, somewhere out there, there is a bird named after a card-carrying racist flying around with no idea that its name is hella offensive. And that's all about to change. The American Ornithological Society, AOS, just announced that these racist birds are getting new names. The English Bird Names Project is an initiative that will remove birds' English common names that are used more often than their scientific names. The changes, which begin next year, will start with between 70 and 80 birds found in the United States and Canada. As scientists, we work to eliminate bias in science. But there has been historic bias in how birds are named, and who might have a bird named in their honor. Exclusionary naming conventions developed in the 1800s, clouded by racism and misogyny. They don't work for us today, and the time has come for us to transform this process and redirect the focus to the birds, where it belongs, said Judith Scarl, executive director and CEO of the American Ornithological, Ornithological Society. She went on, I'm proud to be a part of this new vision and I am excited to work in partnership with a broad array of experts and bird lovers in creating an inclusive naming structure. The AOS assembled an ad hoc committee in 2022 to take a look at some of the problematic monikers and make more appropriate, aka non-racist, recommendations. The public can keep up with the project online at www. American Ornithology, Ornithology, pardon me again, dot O-R-G. That's one word, American Ornithology. And on Instagram at A-M Ornith. The AOS hopes the change will make bird watching and conservation more inclusive. Now, all I have to do is keep Central Park Karens from making fake calls to police while black people are watching. Next one published on the third, written by Jessica Washington. Why Tanahasi Coates was afraid to speak up in support of Palestine. There's no way for me as an African American to come back and stand before you to witness segregation and announce and pardon me and not say anything about it, said Coates. Acclaimed author Tanahasi Coates has joined a growing list of public figures calling for an end to the bombardment of the Gaza Strip and justice for the Palestinian people. After traveling to Palestine and Israel earlier this year, Coates says he had a responsibility to speak out on what he witnessed. Last month, Coates and several other prominent authors and artists signed a letter in the New York Book Review asking, quote, the international community to commit to ending the catastrophe, pardon me, the catastrophe, catastrophes, 
pardon me, for ending the catastrophe unfolding in Gaza and to finally pursuing a comprehensive and just political solution in Palestine. While on Democracy Now!, Coates said that he feared speaking out in support of the Palestinians, alluding to the backlash many have faced for sharing pro-Palestinian views. He said, I wasn't just nervous, I was afraid. I know that A, because of my upbringing, and I know that B, because of my vocation as a journalist, you can't behold evil and then return and not speak on it. And segregation is evil. The Howard professor says that he doesn't understand how certain African-American politicians could defend the regime. I don't know how anybody who benefits who stands on the shoulders of our ancestors' struggle against Jim Crow, against segregation, could see what is happening right now, could see the bombs being dropped, 9,000 people dead, an ungodly number of them children, in service of Jim Crow and segregation, which we have exported, and be okay with that. I don't understand it, he said. Coates told Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! that he expected to find a morally gray situation when he arrived in the occupied territories, but instead, it was immediately clear what was happening. He said, It suddenly dawned on me that I was in a region of the world where some people could vote and some people could not. I go to Hebron, and we got out as a group of writers, and we were given a tour by our Palestinian guide, and we got to a certain street, and he said to us, I can't walk down this street. If you want to continue, you have to continue without me. And that was shocking to me. Coates went on to address the White House's actions in Gaza, calling out President Joe Biden for his dismissal of the Palestinian death toll. He said, at some point, you know, there's that saying, when people show you who they are, you have to believe them. And so I have spent a lot of time trying to do the political calculus on this, and I think at a certain point we have to just stop and say, they believe it. They believe it. They believe bombs should be dropped on children. They just think it's okay. They think it's okay, or at the very least, they think it's the price of doing business. Next article is written by Amira Castilla, and it was published on the 1st. Howard University creates first HBCU figure skating team. The team will be attending its first competition in February 2024. Howard University has just made history as the first HBCU with a figure skating program. Students Maya James and Cheyenne Walker were both skaters before deciding to dedicate their college years to Howard University, which didn't previously have a skating program. The two ladies connected with each other via Instagram in late 2022 and expressed how much they missed doing the sport they grew up perfecting. Then they got to work to start the club on their own. It took a semester for the club to be officially registered by the school and U.S. figure skating, and in the summer of 2023, the club was clear to start recruiting. Unlike other college sports that usually recruit people with previous experience in the sport, this skating program was intended to be available to everybody. The program is split into two levels. One level is for people with prior experience, ready to travel and compete, in February 2024, 
at the University of Delaware. The other group is filled with varying levels of skaters learning how to perfect their skills. The founder of the Diversify Ice Hockey Foundation, Joe Savory and Joy Thomas, a fellow board member, is coaching the skaters. Savory is a U.S. national and international skating coach who helped his brother train to be in the U.S. Junior National Comp, pardon me, Junior National Championships, and Team USA. He created the foundation to give people with various hardships the opportunity to learn the sport. In January of this year, Fisk University competed in its first meet as the historic first HBCU with the gymnastics team. In February, Howard University's all-black swim team won its first conference championship. HBCUs are slowly but surely challenging stereotypes by creating all-black teams that dominate historically majority white sports. Which sport is next? While speaking with U.S. figure skating, Ariel Clark, who was a member of the team, reflected on the importance of making history. Being the first of anything is really a big re responsibility because you're trying to set the precedent for everybody else, said Clark. Another member of the team, Gabrielle, Gabrielle Francis, thought she was the only skater at Howard University, and so did I. But the whole time we were in the same space with each other and we didn't even know. So, if there is another HBCU that feels like they should be, pardon me, that they should create a figure skating team, or feels inspired by our story, I think that would bring a lot of the current skaters on those campuses together to create a powerhouse of HBCU skaters. Still reading from the root, from their media section. This one written by Stephanie Holland. It was published on the 3rd. Lawman Bass Reeves is a standout celebration of a legendary black lawman. The creative team behind the new Paramount Plus Western spoke to the Root about the importance of highlighting this real-life hero. It's always exciting to see black characters in genres that don't normally include us. It's an added bonus when those characters are real historical figures. If heroic and fascinating tales about real-life black heroes are your jam, premiering November 5th, the drama stars David Oyoolo as the famed U.S. Marshal who became a legend of the Old West. The series follows Bass as he escapes slavery, starts a family, and finds his calling as a marshal. Creator, writer Chad Fian and director Damian Marcano spoke to The Root about showcasing black representation and balancing the series with the real history. Feehan assembled a diverse team of writers, experts, and historians so the series could strike the right balance between presenting a compelling drama and an historically accurate chronicle of Reeves's life. I was finding these seminal moments that we know about Reeves's life and using those as the foundation of the story, said Feehan. The real fun part was imagining the fictional moments that filled in the in-between. The excitement of being creative and trying to figure out something that connects these moments, but also informs the narrative and legacy of Bass Reeves. Oyelowo, who was also executive producing the series, 
gives a captivating performance as a man who never lets the audience forget that he's smarter than he lets on. Unlike the white men he works with, Bass does not see the world as black and white. His experiences have shown him that it exists in shades of gray, an idea he uses in his investigations. The first three episodes of the show delivered a fresh take on a well-worn genre. It has the vibe of an old-school western, while simultaneously feeling fresh and unique. Though it's part of the popular Yellowstone universe, it's definitely its own entity that stands out from the rest of the franchise. It says here that Lawman, Bass Reeves, premieres November 5th on Paramount+. And the final article for this week comes from blackenterprise.com. Written by Iman Milner, posted November 3rd. Anonymous donor pledges $10 million to Rise East initiative to transform lives of black residents in East Oakland. Selena Wilson, CEO of East Oakland Youth Development Center and Rise East's leader, sees the major donation as not only an indication that the organization's plan is attainable, but it is key to unlocking an even larger fiscal contribution. Rise East, a collective 10-year initiative to improve the lives of black families and children in East Oakland, just had its prayers answered as an anonymous donor pledged $10 million toward its efforts. Spurred by the dedication of community leaders, the organization has worked to amplify five levels of power, economic, knowledge, people-centric, cultural, and political. Rise East wants residents of the Bay Area and investors to imagine an East Oakland where black children and families are not only surviving but flourishing. Rise East's efforts will help to develop commercial corridors that will be used for affordable housing as well as black-owned businesses. The investment areas the organization focuses on aim to ensure that black children and youth learn and grow. Black residents are safe, connected, and enriched. Black families have a place to live and thrive generationally. Black workers and small businesses have economic support for sustainability, as well as the health and well-being of black families. Another key component of Rise East's efforts is a four by, pardon me, that's 40 by 40 block area of East Oakland they hope to turn into a black cultural zone, or a geographic area where black people have a significant presence and black culture is celebrated and preserved. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Network for Good. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.